Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. It's Friday, August 12th. For users of the Colorado River, all signs are pointing to a future where they get less water. But cutting back is hard work. That makes finding a new source for the region's cities and farms a seductive proposition, even if it's expensive and energy-intensive. From KUNC, Alex Hager has more on the trade-offs that come with turning the ocean into drinking water. It's a picture-perfect afternoon in Southern California. The sun is beating down on a volleyball game in the sand and a surfer paddling out into the waves. And just across the road from the beach, this salty seawater is getting a new life at the largest desalination plant on the continent. At 10 a.m., you have the morning surfers swimming in it, uh, just off the, you know, off the coast in the ocean here. Carlsbad, now it's high-quality drinking water, ready for consumption. That's Michelle Peters, the plant's technical manager. She's walking me through a sprawling web of tanks and pipes where the breeze delivers an occasional whiff of low tide. Peters explains how this plant pulls from the ocean, removes all of the impurities and salt, and makes that water drinkable. This is where the magic happens. This is really what makes desal, desal. It's the heart of, heart of the site. That adds water to a system that is stressed by drought and demand. The Colorado River supplies about two-thirds of the water for San Diego County. And around the rest of this parched region, people are asking if similar plants could provide some relief to places that also depend on the shrinking river. It probably is and will be someday a solution for municipal water users. Sarah Porter directs the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University. Taking water from the ocean comes with a catch. It costs a lot of money just to make a little water ready to drink. But as the West's water crisis gets more critical, could it be worth it? Porter says eventually. When it becomes a solution is when the less expensive water supplies and less expensive opportunities to stretch current supplies have already been taken advantage of, deployed. In one proposal, Arizona would pay for a new facility across the border in Mexico in exchange for some of that country's Colorado River water. Porter says that could make sense one day, but should be more of a last resort. Other analysts agree that desal is not the silver bullet for cities. Jay Lund studies the economics of water at the University of California, Davis. If they get desperate enough, that that could work. He says there's one big alternative that makes sense before cities get desperate. Nearly 80% of the water in the Colorado River Basin is used for agriculture. And if farmers and ranchers are paid to give up some of the water they use for growing, that'll free up some supply. It'll be far cheaper for Las Vegas or Phoenix or other, other cities to buy the farmland and follow that lower value economic activity in order to keep their higher value economic activity. 
Landa says we can look to other countries for some lessons about desalination, why it could work and why it might not work here. In Australia, there was a really bad drought in the early 2000s with about a decade of low rainfall. And so they built about six coastal desalination plants, and only two of those are now currently in operation. The others were you know, several billion dollars worth of, of plants that were just mothballed. Israel provides some lessons, too. It gets about 80 percent of its domestic water through desal, but it's right on the coast. Some big water short cities in the southwest are not. And it is really expensive to move water. Sharon Megdal directs the Water Resources Research Center at the University of Arizona. She says even with the drawbacks, desal is worth exploring. When we're looking at the full mix and the full portfolio I think there's a role for desalinated seawater. And the fact is, it will take time to get projects permitted and built. And so you have to think ahead. But time, just like water, isn't exactly in great supply in the Southwest. As policymakers look to keep the water flowing, desalination likely won't make much more than a small dent in the shortage. In Carlsbad, California, I'm Alex Hager. This story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River, produced and distributed by KUNC and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. Every Tuesday, KUNC talks with the Colorado Sun to find out what stories are on their radar. This week, KUNC's Bo Baker spoke with reporter Michael Booth. Let's begin with the big bill in Congress to tackle climate change, the Inflation Reduction Act. This $750 billion package has a lot going for it, including some money for the Colorado River Basin. What can you tell us, Michael? Well, from the reporting outlets like the Colorado Sun and KUNC, we know that we're facing a big water crash in the West. Federal officials have warned the seven states and 40 million people that rely on Colorado River Basin water that this long drought that we're in means there will be two to four million fewer acre feet of water available next year. And this starts right away. All the states need to figure out ways to keep more water in the river, put more back, and really fast. The bottom line is it takes money and lots of it. Chris Alcott and I described it this way. It's not a problem that can be solved by state millions. It's got to be federal billions to buy or conserve that much water. Now that $750 billion Inflation Reduction Act is a big ship to tie your boat to. Western senators, including Colorado Democrat Michael Bennett, fought hard to keep $4 billion in the act, which could get final passage later this week. That money is to be used exclusively for getting more water back in the Colorado River and a couple of other other western basins. States can use it to buy or rent agricultural water. They can fund programs to save more city water, like low-flow toilets or lawn turf buybacks. $4 billion is not enough to buy that much water outright, let alone for every year of a long-term drought that we continue to be in. But the senators are calling it at least a down payment on a big challenge, and conservation groups are pretty enthusiastic. And, Michael, do you think that would be targeted more toward lower basin users or upper basin, or would it be a split? I think it will be evenly split. There are senators certainly looking out for that money who will make sure it gets shepherded to as many states as possible. But really, it's the way it's working out with the negotiations. All the states need to cooperate on this, so it almost doesn't matter who gets it as long as water gets saved. Magic mushrooms will be on the ballot this fall. Colorado could become the second state to decriminalize medical use. One of the Sun's contributors actually started microdosing psilocybin to treat anxiety and depression. What did they experience? 
Chris Gata for us wrote a long and intriguing piece for us about her own experience with the magic mushrooms that contain the hallucinogenic that we just mentioned in the psilocybin. Outside of Denver, they are illegal, but a growing number of people seem to be using them under the guidance of counselors to address longstanding psychological needs. Chris is one of those people. She writes about microdosing in order to better cope with childhood tragedy and to stop her own unhealthy behavior that she felt was subjecting her current family to. For her, the mushrooms work tremendously well, and she describes the experiences and the effects in remarkable detail. It's a powerful personal journey, but will be relevant in November. Colorado will be voting on legalizing mushrooms statewide, and if passed, the measure would make growing in possession and use legal. It will be interesting to see what voters decide. Finally, former Weld County Commissioner Barbara Kirkmeyer is running for the new 8th District. She's got some controversy in her past for leading a campaign to get 11 northern Colorado counties to secede and form a new state. Over at The Sun, reporter Jesse Paul reexamined this part of Kirkmeyer's legacy. Michael, how does that factor into her race for the 8th District? Well, these races that we know are going to be close and controversial, it's really important to look at the history of the candidates and figure out what's relevant, what's not. Jesse brings up a not-so-distant effort by Barbara Kirkmeyer and other northern Colorado officials who were upset in the early 2010s at laws and policies imposed on them by Denver Metro officials they said were way out of touch with their needs. Kirkmeyer was a Weld County commissioner at the time and is now the Republican nominee for that district. Back then, those northern state officials asked 11 counties that they wanted to secede and form their own state. They voted no, including Weld County, but now some Democrats are using harsh words to paint Kirkmeyer's part in all that, calling it fringe or extreme or even labeling her a secessionist. She says she's proud of that effort, that it forced Metro Denver officials to finally listen more to the needs of rural areas and outstate areas like hers. So it could be a boon for her chances, but also might hinder her with some voters. Look for a lot more of this discussion and political ads coming near you. Michael, thank you for speaking with us today and sharing some of the stories The Sun has been following. It's county fair season, and things are getting back to normal this third summer of the pandemic. In the coming weeks, Lincoln and Route counties, among others, will have their fairs, and it builds up to the state fair at the end of the month in Pueblo. KUNC's Rural and Small Communities reporter Ray Solomon went to the Yuma County Fair, where the focus is on the farm and future farmers. It's not that you can't gorge yourself on funnel cake and cotton candy at the Yuma County Fair. There is a midway, after all, with rides and games and all the usual amusements. But that's not the main event here in the county with the second biggest agricultural production in the state. At this fair, the center of gravity is really the grandstand and the show rings where experts judge livestock raised by Yuma County's children. And everyone's attention is focused on the county's most important product, the next generation of farmers. Leah Richardson from Yuma, Colorado. Lucas Pish. I'm from Lake Colorado. Cheyenne Janish. I'm 17. I am 14. Seven. My name is Josiah Uris. I live in Yuma, just a mile down 39. I'm 15. Dean Wingfield was one of those fair kids himself. I, this is the 70th fair since I was born, and I'm thinking I've been to 69 fairs. Wingfield was a county commissioner for 24 years, and he's kind of an expert on the fair here. He says the Yuma Fair has its own focus. Compared to some of the counties around, Yuma County has is, is always been kind of youth-oriented fair, you know, it's more about the kids and their livestock judging and their 
home ec stuff. It was so we could have the kids let them have, you know, their year's bounty come to the fair and get, show what they've done. Like the bounty on display at this year's swine show, where Kathy Christensen showed up to support her grandson. At 12, he won grand champion with his pig one year. I'm bragging a little bit. That grandson and all the other pig kids have worked hard all spring and summer raising their animals up from piglets. After all the ribbons have been awarded, the kids will auction off their animals at a public sale where supporters often bid prices up to multiples of market value. Yuma's really, really good about getting into their pockets and giving to these kids. Last year, those kids made sales totaling over $300,000. This year, with official numbers still trickling in, they're on track to bring in over half a million. Fair staff takes a tiny commission, but the kids get to keep almost all of the proceeds. Well, you hope you make sale up there because that's pretty good college fund money. More than college money, the kids are learning to carry on the work of agricultural production. They are being raised and trained to feed everybody who is listening to this right now. JoLynn Midcap is the 4-H extension agent in Yuma County, where she coordinates roughly 200 local kids. She says working on 4-H projects and then exhibiting them at the fair is how the culture and skills of agricultural life are passed down through the generations. 4-H is so historically ingrained in this community. You know, everybody's grandparents and great-grandparents did it. The kids raise livestock and crops. They learn leatherworking, baking, sewing, food preservation, even robotics, because heck, somebody's got to be able to go up against the circuitry of modern farm equipment. And then they come to the fair in August to show off their developing skills and bask in the glow of community recognition. You know, it, it's a lifestyle. I'm going to take something off my ranch or from my field, and, you know, my grandpa taught me how to grow it. And you're not just showing an exhibit, but you're, you're actually showing and exhibiting a piece of your heart because you raised it and you grew it. And, you know, you did it with your dad and maybe your grandpa. So it's just everything you know has been passed down and now you're showing it off here in Yuma. Organizers say the county loses money on the fair each year. But to hear Dean Wingfield tell it, a straight accounting would completely miss the true value of the county fair. Something kind of gets in your blood. Probably the first combine I ever saw with a cab on is at the fair. And first of a lot of things that I, it was at the fair the first time I saw it. And first of some breeds of cattle, the first time you saw them was at Yuma County Fair. And you know, it just, it was something that was new for country kids out here. It was something you really enjoyed and you can't hardly miss. Ray Solomon, KUNC. This story is part of the America Amplified initiative. America Amplified is a national public media collaboration focused on community engagement reporting. That's all for today on Colorado Edition. You can catch the Colorado Edition podcast every Friday, so please hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Our theme music is composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burrows. Other music in the show by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. Thank you for spending some time with KUNC's Colorado Edition. See you next week. The new season of The Colorado Dream explores the Black immigrant experience in Aurora. 
It's told through the eyes of one African woman. I would sit on the beach and just daydream about coming to America. And the city of Aurora, that's working to become an inclusive home for all. In the last 20 years, we have a new face of the city. I'm Stephanie Daniel. Join me for the Colorado Dream Newcomers Welcome. You can find the series at KUNC.org or wherever you get your podcasts.